The year 2020 saw an unprecedented and transformative shift for the IT industry. The lockdowns forced us all to shutter our offices and work from home, which called for IT departments everywhere to rise to the occasion and use technology to become more agile, responsive, and resilient. As we reach the end of the year, it becomes vital for us to look at how digital transformation is currently being implemented within organizations and what businesses are doing to improve their IT infrastructure in 2021 and beyond. In this episode of Cocktails, we look at what CIOs are prioritizing for 2021, the challenges and opportunities presented by remote working, and the digital transformation efforts, initiatives, challenges, and tools that have emerged and will soon drive the IT industry and business into the future. Joining us in this round of cocktails is Torclaw CEO and founder, David Brown. Hi, David. G'day, Captain. And our guest for today is an internationally recognized business strategist, enterprise architect, transformation consultant, futurist, analyst, and an in-demand keynote speaker. He's widely regarded as one of the most influential figures in customer experience, digital workplace, technology strategy, and enterprise IT. He's also the Vice President and Principal Analyst at Constellation Research, where he heads up research and global client advisory into CIO issues, the future of work, and emerging technology in the enterprise. Diane Hinchcliffe, great to have you on the podcast. Welcome. Well, it's great to be here. Thank you. All right, let's start. Uh, you recently published the CIO Outlook for 2021 through Constellation Research. And in there, you found that CIOs will be using their budgets to prioritize digital transformation more than anything else in 2021, even going beyond uh, cybersecurity. Uh, with things slowly normalizing and with the hope of a vaccine uh, on the horizon, do you see the same things being prioritized for 2021, 2022, and beyond? Well, I think the CIOs that I surveyed understood that you know, uh, at some point next year, we some of us might get back to normal, uh, but it's going to leave behind shifts that that aren't going to go back to the way that they were. So, um, you know, we've moved uh, here in the United States, 46 million workers moved in two weeks uh, to remote work. They've built out offices, uh, IT infrastructure, uh, adopted new tools and habits. Um, uh, businesses realize that they're more productive. I've talked to almost uh, 200 CIOs since this all started, and to a single person, they've said that the productivity of workers is higher, so who's going to want to give that up, right? Um, and then the customers have moved too, uh, and that's the part that's, that's not going to change either. Um, customers, uh, you know, they expected to have um, you know, a, a different experience uh, after the pandemic began. You know, they want, they, want to, they want to be served remotely, they want things delivered, um, they want direct service. Um, and so that, that digital transformation is going to continue. Um, you know, we've seen everything fast forwarded five, uh, five years, uh, you know, between two and five years, but it was certainly some organizations are going, had to go much farther overnight because all their customers moved where they wanted to be serviced. How did they, those CIOs were talking about their productivity improvements. How are they measuring that? Um, so everyone's got their own measures, right? So, um, you know, and a lot of them, I would say, are by the seat of the pants. You can kind of get a general sense that things are moving faster. 
the, the, the flows that you've been watching are moving quicker. So I've asked for data pretty consistently. And, and, and unless you've been using more advanced talent analytics, uh, you know, like Office 365 has amazing tools to tell you if your workers are doing their standard processes faster, you can tell, right? Because everything is instrumented in the cloud. If everything's got an API, those APIs can be counted. Uh, you can go and look at and, and map those API calls to your, to your KPIs. And, and uh, you know, you can do things you never could before, but that's, we're still in the early, early days of doing you know, things like that. So most of it's anecdotal. And you, you mentioned that uh, CIOs don't want to go back to the way they were doing business before. They're, they're seeing productivity improvements. And you talk about customers uh, also uh, yeah, ex- wanting to uh, do business differently now in the future. What about employees? I think from my anecdotal conversations with people, they're also getting used to this whole remote workplace or flexibility, at least in terms of remote workplaces. I, th- I think you have s- several personas. You, um, in my research, you have some people who really are more productive in an office environment, um, you know, bouncing ideas off each other, getting plugged into the energy, um, having one place where that's the, that's the total focus. Uh, and there's other people who just who crave that flexibility, haven't been able to get it. Um, we're forced to come into the office um, where they get interrupted all the time. Uh, and, and so those people, I think that the, the introverts, the knowledge workers that didn't have to uh, do a lot of in-person collaboration, um, there are beneficiaries of this. And there are certainly, there are certainly losers here. You know, there are certain people that, that, that the office life just works better for. And I think, you know, the, the main office of most businesses is going to become more like the, the remote office. You, you go in one or two days a week when you need to, otherwise you don't need to, but the people who really have to be there, they can be there, right? And the people who don't want, don't need to be there, don't have to be. We're, I think we're just, we're, this is the last kind of digital block that falls into place for us. The pandemic has forced us to say, well, let's actually do what makes the most sense. We don't have to do what we did before. Mm. I'm seeing some organizations even uh, adapting their office space uh, before employees come back on um, mass to accommodate more hot desking and the like already right sizing there absolutely we're rethinking how to use that space the best knowing what we know now yeah yeah so with the CIO's response uh, obviously was accelerated uh, in terms of remote working and the like what were some of the biggest challenges they were saying to you that they faced over the last six months you know when they had to respond so quickly uh, probably initiatives they had in the pipeline for a while, all of a sudden that had to implement overnight, I'm, I'm, I'm imagining. Well, yes, uh, for sure. Uh, so the biggest challenges were was just the, the physical, mental, and psychological toll that this was taking on their workforce, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, I heard so many stories of middle managers having to become, you know, psychologists and family mediators and really trying to solve these problems uh, and, and, and not being equipped to do that. Saying so that's not the job I signed up for and I don't know how to do that. Uh, so we just saw that the, the, the toll on workers was the number one challenge and, and suddenly asking them to do so much more and work so differently uh, when that toll was being taken um, was a real challenge. Uh, I visited New York uh, a short while ago. I went through the whole quarantine process and, and that entire state of New York is shell-shocked, um, you know, talking to everyone just because they were hit so hard. So certain areas um, have, uh, have, you know, have, have it differently for sure. Um, in terms of the other two things, IT support has been severely challenged uh, in, in dealing with it. I wrote a report on this on how remote work is going. Most workers, two thirds of workers think that IT doesn't have adequate resources to support them, given all the variability. There's you know, several orders of magnitude more endpoint variability and, 
in the IT, local IT infrastructure in the house, the available bandwidth, uh, the devices they can use, the apps they've been given, um, what works, you know, the access to the data center that they've got. Um, and so that variability is creating huge support uh, uh, challenges. That's getting better now steadily. We see the data showing it, so that's the number two item. Uh, and and uh, the last one was the IT workers don't have the skills uh, to handle such a big shift, both in you know, having to transform customer experience for the customers who want to be served in new ways and workers who now need to be uh, supported more intensively, supported in new ways, uh, coached through problems they never had before, kept productive. Um, and so that uh, they're, they're, I'm hearing that the staffing profile is not, you know, they don't have the people they need to really service this new environment. That's interesting, isn't it? Because you have you haven't mentioned any sort of technical challenges. You talk these are sort of human resource related issues, right? Mental. Um, well, in the end of the day, it's almost always it's almost always a people problem before it's a technology problem, right? But I mean, there, there are some, and cybersecurity is a really big issue in that uh, now there's we have uh, you know a thousand times every organization has a thousand times or so more points of attack because you know, it's everyone's house now too, right? Uh, and the attacks are way up. They're up 50% that we know of. Um, I talked to uh, certain industries like those in healthcare are terrified of ransomware because of what it will mean to their patients uh, if they get locked out of their systems. Uh, but they're also the ones that don't, they don't really work uh, remotely. Um, they're not, they're not getting the beneficiaries of all this. Uh, obviously cyber uh, attacks are way up. Um, but the big thing that CIOs are looking for I, this is one of the clearest signals other than this need for, you know, I need to, I need to deliver on digital transformation of work and customer experience within the next six months. That's what the data said. Uh, is, is a real focus on automation to be able to do more with less, to be able to tackle these problems very, very quickly. Whereas automation was nice to have. It was always on the, on the backlog. Uh, and we're going to do automation when we can. And, and as opportunities arrive now, it's, it was, I, more than two thirds of CIOs say that is their top strategy for getting through all of this with staff reductions. All the challenges is, is they have to automate IT support. They have to automate the business. They have to automate, automate. So that's the other technology. RPA, AI, workflow, all those came out really clear. Is, is it still a priority, you think, as, as people get back to work and start going back to the office? Or do you think that uh, automation priority becomes less so? Get oh, the, the, uh, I don't know if you downloaded the actual study uh, and the data, but um, uh, most of the respondents, and these are all top CIOs I handpicked, um, so these are high-functioning organizations for the most part. I, I wanted to get clear data, so I didn't, you know, I didn't ob uh, approach any organizations obviously circling the drain. Mm -hmm. uh, but they're either going a, a restructuring of the business or restructuring of IT or both, most of them. So you have this perfect storm of, you know, I, we're rethinking everything, we're restructuring everything that we do. And when I pressed on some of that, I circled around and tried to get some data about why that was. And they say, well, the thing is we're running on fumes, right? So we're sized and staffed and structured to be a much larger organization, but our business is way down, right? Our business is way disrupted. To some industries have done well, but most of them are in the middle or not doing well. Yeah. And they're just trying to survive and they don't know how long they have to hang on, right? So automation is viewed as a way to hang on longer is the message that I got from some of my conversations is I can do more with less. I don't want to cut my best talent. I want to automate my least productive people and get rid of them. Right. Um, and keep the talent. I want to keep the, the irreplaceable people as long as possible. Right. Was, uh, is the message I'm hearing. And there's a lot, a lot of studies from the last downturn that, that those who let go of talent too quickly never recovered fully. 
All right. So we also saw a lot of companies and CIOs uh, facilitating their digital transformation efforts through collaboration tools. So in one of your previous articles, you honed in on the importance of said tools. And you said that the online community or the enterprise social network is the most strategic model. Why do you think this is the case? Well, the um, most collaboration tools are point to point or involve small groups of people. You know, you can do email blasts, for example, but it's still primarily it's a one way conversation. You're, you're notifying a bunch of people, um, um, you, know, uh, you know, one to many. An enterprise social network has been proven the scale like social media. You can actually involve thousands of people simultaneously in a conversation. Uh, and we also know that those, those people, those several thousand people can be, uh, can be highly productive in knowledge work. And the proof point I often use is open source software, right? These are, these are online communities of people using social tools backed by a, um, uh, a code repository where they collaborate on very sophisticated software engineering problems. They actually develop operating systems, databases, entire platforms. Um, there are, there are uh, something like 80,000 open source software solutions that are in a state of maturity or advanced maturity where they have a community of hundreds to thousands of people around them. There's always a core commit group, but where the whole community collaborates on making that product better over time. Uh, we know this is a repeatable thing to do uh, and is the most cost-effective, most innovative way uh, and, and also the lowest defect way of creating really high-quality knowledge work outputs. So, uh, and in fact, enterprise social networks kind of came from that world saying, well, if we can do, if it works with that, which is a really hard problem, we should be able to do anything with that. Um, and I, I wrote, once wrote a book called Social Business by Design where I gave 100 examples of enterprises doing remarkable things through mass collaboration. It's just that non-technical people, non-IT people are not really familiar with these tools or know how to use them. You know, they didn't come up in our, in our world. Uh, and so that's been the, the slow rollout. I mean, it's, it's slowly but steadily getting out there. Uh, it's just taking time for the world to, to adapt. And that mass collaboration, are you referring to mass collaboration within the organization or does it also extend to the outside the organization? Well, it's one, it's one continuum, right? It's just like, um, you know, if email uh, didn't, allow you to reach just pretty much anybody, you wouldn't use it. You go, well, I can only talk to the people inside the organization. So, um, you know, I, I'm going to stop using it. So that's one of the reasons for abandonment of mass collaboration tools is that they're not, they're artificially constrained for, for some strange reason. Now the industry fixed that, but too late. Um, as people sit, gravitated back to, to, to noisy uh, and unproductive, you know, less productive channels like email. Uh, email has several big problems. One that assumes that you have perfect foreknowledge about who should be involved, which we've learned now is not the case. You're leaving it, usually leaving out many important stakeholders. They, often many you didn't even know about. Um, and then it's a very noisy uh, and interruptive medium. Um, it's, not, it's not really designed for it, uh, for people to come in and out of the conversation, for these conversations to last a long time. And you've got the, you have the, the BCC and the, and, the, and the CC chains that just, just kill, kill collaboration in large companies especially. So uh, uh, these new tools do work better, but unfortunately in the early days, they were constrained. It, it's gotta be everybody. You gotta be able to reach all these, you know, all stakeholders. It's like, you know, things like Slack have done so well because they don't, they don't limit who, who you can talk to at all. Interesting. Yeah, so how do you think the online community and ESN will drive technology and digital work forward? Well, I, I'm not sure it's a, it's a, it's a solution. I mean, I, I, I've uh, long said it's like, I don't get too caught mm -hmm. up in the tools. It's what we're doing that matters. You can actually do a lot of these things uh, without any of the tooling. And some companies have, like the, the famous company W.L. Gore that makes uh, Gore-Tex. They're number one in their industry. And for 30 some odd years now, they've 
uh, insistent on open collaboration, um, that everybody has visibility into local work and everybody um, comes together to solve the problems. And, and they ended up naturally gravitating to these, these tools that, that, that openly share knowledge by default, right? The big difference with email is that everything is not shared. It's only shared with the people in, in, that are on the, the email list, uh, the recipient list. In online communities, enterprise social networks, everything's shared by default. Everyone can see everything, right? Unless you've created a private group, which is bad, right? And generally speaking, in my, in my work, it's, we've discovered those things aren't, they, re, they recreate the problem. So um, it's how we work, right? So I, when I wrote, wrote my book, Social Business by Design, I created, uh, I defined 10 principles, but principle number one was, uh, in any process, anyone has to be able to participate. Maybe the group won't accept that participation, right? We do see this in open source communities. If you have a bad idea and you can't convince the community, they won't let you. They won't let that code check in stay, uh, and that's a good thing. But everyone's allowed to participate. They at least get try, have a chance to convince the, their stakeholders that that's a good thing and this is a good idea. So uh, that's got to be the principle. And we we discovered in open innovation models have shown us that that is the model that works by far the best is gather all of the innovation and then decide what you're going to do with it. It's a real, it's a real mindset change though, to ad adopt this kind of approach, isn't it? Like what, what are the, what, what prevents companies adopting uh, this community approach? Uh, well, one of the biggest ones is that it's not how we've, we've uh, raised, raised our managers and leaders in business school. This is not taught yeah. until very recently. Now it's now, you know, you see like uh Companies that tend to do this tend to be very high performance. So you look at WL Gore or Zappos, which is the big shoe manufacturer, uh, shoe uh, a store uh, online, again number one in their space. So you look at Valve, the the video game company. They're they're often number one. They're very highly leading, and they also have the same model where there's no managers. Everyone's everyone. It's a it's a it's a meritocracy of ideas. Everyone decides what they want to work on, and and if your community around you likes it, you get to stay. Right? You know. Um, those organizations tend to have much higher performance. So we've seen this even with very large companies in bureaucratic parts of the world like um, Bosch in Germany. They, they use a set of principles very much like this. And online community managers can get, have a pay grade of all the way up to the CEO, right? It's very interesting. So some people are doing this and they tend to be higher performing organizations, right? This is what's interesting. And, and the, rest of the, the rest of us don't really get that. But the, the, what it is is largely we're not we don't know about it. We don't see it. We're not, we're not taught it. And so it's taken a while for us to learn this from the technology world. Does it get frustrating for you and you're consulting and, and you can see what works and you're, you're telling management, you know, this works guys and, <laughs> and, and getting adoption is, is difficult. Well, I'm dating myself, but I've been a consultant for 35 years. And one of the things you learn early on is, is it's almost always a people problem. Mm. So, um, no, I'm used to it, right? So, uh, and what's nice is what's exciting is that these to open tools of, for communication and collaboration will, uh, actually allow you to drive the change, right? So one of the things I insist now, I've, I've learned to just require is if you want to work with me and you believe that this is important, then we're going to run this project this way and we're going to drive change in the organization. You must do this whole change effort uh, for the future of work in an online community and anyone in the organization can participate, help out, learn, um, and uh, since I started doing that, the efforts have gone consistently much better and faster because everyone can see it. They can all learn. Um, they can all, they can complain. They can get all their objections off their chest and then they can, then they can uh, begin to see how other parts of the organization are, are doing it better. So it's just, it, it just works better. It, it becomes a, a vehicle that goes of itself if you, if you start it that way. 
So, like, whilst Zappos will sort of have a whole of organisation type community approach, presumably for a large organisation who wants to adopt this, they can start on a project basis, like some small isolated project. Yeah, you can always start. In fact, I'd say because these are largely perceived as optional communication channels, it's difficult to get more. I've seen very few organisations that, that get over, over more than about half of their organisation really active in these channels. And that's okay. It's a, it's about having the right people using the right tools for the job. And you'll tend to be tend to be projects, right? It'll tend to be efforts like you know a big RFPs and sales, big operational situations and ops, uh, big projects uh, inside the organization. Like Bosch has this great piece of data when they moved uh, the relocation of an assembly line from the traditional way into the enterprise social network. Setting up a production line uh, dropped from I think it was um, uh, four weeks to six days. And they said, wow, so this is, I mean, it was evidence that they were on the right track, right? Because, you know, the, the data is out there. We're just, it's, it's taking a while for the management theory and our education and our mentoring processes to catch up. Right. Your, your, your book, which you've mentioned a couple of times, this, this elaborates on this whole concept uh, and, and goes through the data and some of the, the case studies associated with this? Yeah, yes, and it goes through and has a framework for doing it. It's based on a number of the early projects that I worked on that were successful in that regard, uh, as well as I took everyone else in the community that had a success story and captured theirs as well. And so yeah, there's a hundred high impact case studies, each one with data of some kind in them. Um, and I want to say if this is gonna if this is happening, we should see lots of people doing it. And, and I was able to find that. Now there's a lot more. I mean, it's amazing. I'm contacted by these big companies. They're just now ca ca catching on to it, right? You know, so it is happening out there. It's just it just it takes time to change millions of people. Yes. All right. Um, so let's talk about uh, your uh, post-pandemic playbook. Uh, I thought it was an interesting read. Uh, what's your advice to CIOs as we now transition towards this? new normal uh, world? Um, so my, my post-pandemic playbook, easy to find by those words. Um, it's one of the top ones out there. I've had it, I sent it to all our CIO contacts and I had many of them that said that they used that as a basis for their plan, the start of their plan, right? They, then they had to add in all the things that they had to do. Um, you have to do two things. One, you need to have a recovery effort. So a team's from as many parts of the organization as you can get to work on just surviving and then getting things back to some semblance of normal. And then you need a growth, you know, a growth team that says, all right, so the world has changed. There's all new opportunities and there's a lot of things we shouldn't be doing anymore. I have to change uh, that we're wasting time and money on. Um, you know, what are those things? Um, and, you know, and all the money you save can be, can be driven back into growth. And then you put the, that funding into what you're going to do. So I say that's the, that's the macro picture. Uh, but if you zoom in, it's we got to retrain the workforce to work differently. I mean, if, if we're in email and video calls, I mean, I have people that are losing their minds because they're stuck in 12 hours of Zoom calls a day, right? Um, Zoom fatigue is set in, right? Um, you know, it's so funny. Now, hardly anyone turns their cameras on. I don't know if you guys are running on the same thing, but, you know, even for people you haven't met before, right? They're like, nope, I, I barely got out of bed today. So this, this is what you get. <laughs> um, and so we just have to train. I think mass collaboration tools are much more efficient. Thousands of people can meet without stepping on each other. They can all be productive at the same time. You put someone on a conference call and one person is talking. You know, a few people are checking email for sure, but that's not productivity, right? You have one person doing the talking, everyone doing the listening. Well, whereas if you work in these channels, you can have a thousand people all working at the same time, all working together with each other at the same time. That's the magic. So there's these better channels for this, this more remote, more asynchronous um, 
way of life that we have now. Uh, so, so just retraining the workforce. Um, and then, you know, we, we saw all of our 2020 digital transformation goals got thrown right out the window. All of our plans got thrown out. But the data, many data sets show that the one part of the IT budget that hasn't been cut in 70 to 80% of organizations is digital transformation because everyone knows that's the future. The world has suddenly changed. And now we, if we cut our budget on catching up with those changes, we're really going to get far, far behind our, and we might not make it. So that was, that's been a really encouraging, I think, a sign of sanity in an insane, otherwise insane year. Uh, and it makes sense to me. Uh, and so we see this, this, you know, these, this desire to uh, invest. But what we're seeing from the survey is that they don't feel like they have the talent. So we're seeing um, new approaches to talent, like uh, on-demand staffing, like gig economy. Uh, I have this new gig economy for IT shortlist you can find by that name. Uh, there's all these startups that have sprung up in the last couple of years, mostly before the pandemic, to say, oh, you need a DevOps team that knows all about analytics. Well, we'll have the whole team ready to go, right? You want to work for two months and then you don't need them anymore because the solution is there? That's fine. Um, and so there's like, you know, Gigster and, and uh, Top Coder and, and all, you know, all these companies out there that, that now, now can provide this rarefied, increasingly specialized talent because IT is getting more complicated. So it's creating all these rarefied buckets. We don't need a whole person uh, you know, to do AWS outposts, maybe. Um, maybe we just need that person for a few weeks to get us uh, so the code will run there, um, and then we're good from that, right? So on-demand talent is where I see this a lot of interest, uh, and, and this is going to allow um, IT practitioners to create designer careers. They only have to work on the projects that sound very interesting to them, right, because they're in high demand. They can turn down whatever they want. So it's creating a very interesting new uh, designer IT, uh, IT career model. Uh, it's all sprung up in the last, you know, couple of years. But, it's, you know, I see this. It's, it's, um, it's taken over professional services. 40% of staffing of professional services is already this model. That's really interesting. I mean, it, it sort of leads to the, where the future is going. Where do you see the future of digital transformation initiatives over the next uh, 10 years? Is it, you talked about uh, the lack of skills and, and uh, in the development organization. So is it about low code application development? Is it about machine learning or microservices and DevOps? Is it robotic, robotic process automation? What, where, where is it going? Well, I mean, automation uh, is, is going to be the foundation, right? So what I like to say is, is by 2025, 90% of everything in IT will be automated just to tread water. You'll be able to cut any head count, right? But so much more IT will be around and a lot of that will be low code. The organizations that can effectively roll out low code to a lot of workers are going to beat up the organizations that can't, right? They're going to be able to do a lot more digitization, a lot more change, a lot more automation without costing much more, right? Because they're going to get most, most high functioning knowledge workers in the organization can learn how to become low coders now. The platforms are really quite good. At, I mean, I, I use them now because they are so effective. Uh, and the, the world will catch on. Um, and so what do we do after that? Well, we chase our customers and, we, and we're going to give them, you know, one-to-one -one customized experiences. That's the end game. Over the next 10 years, everyone is going to begin to get a, pers a truly personalized experience from the companies they work with. I already get it now from certain companies, right? We're always, they're, they're telling me what they think that might be interested in. They're often right, you know. Um, and anticipating the products that I want and giving them to me, not waiting for me to ask. So that's happening. Uh, it's just, again, slow. It'll take 10 years at least uh, for the average organization to get around to doing this, but that's what they're going to aim at. When they automate a lot, they're going to be able to free up a lot of talent to say, all right, what's the highly competitive? I want to hold my customer really close by giving them what they want before they even ask for it, right? And they just keep paying me, right? And so 
is this, this you know, very anticipatory, personalized, customized uh, demand curve that you're going to ride with every customer one-to-one, -one, right? That's the end goal um, that we see. And the companies that can get close to that, right? No one's going to get, no one's going to achieve that truly in a really meaningful way, except for maybe like Amazon or Apple uh, in the short term. But long term, you have to be trying to crack that nut, get closer and closer. And so um, that's the end game is, is you know, creating the ultimate customer experiences for our organizations. And we have to automate everything so we can free up enough creativity and capacity to actually start delivering on that. Exciting times. And, and, and what's going to prevent companies doing it? What's going, to, what's going to be the number one thing achieving it? Is it the, uh, coming back to the people? Yeah, well, I mean, it's interesting. It's like, um, you know, I, I, for a long time, I saw pro coders, the people who, you know, who actually professionally code for a living were really against low code and still really look down on it. But they now look at it, I've seen a shift now where they kind of see that, hey, this actually frees me up to do the really, only keep the really exciting projects and only pro coders can do. There's a lot of things only pro coders will be able to do for the foreseeable future, right? But business applications is not one of them, right? But I need very few people who love coding business applications. Um, and so uh, from that standpoint, you're still going to have a lot of people in IT that are going to be against these new ways saying, how are we going to manage a thousand uh, new end-user coded applications and keep them secure and private. Well, that's actually the job of IT in the future is, is putting guardrails around all of this user-generated IT, which is where things are going. We already had it. We just, are, we just don't recognize it. 40% uh, of what we do in organizations is run by spreadsheets, which is a terrible model for how to run an organization right now. It, all that should be moved to these new tools that are, you know, that have, you know, real application lifecycle management and, um, you know, yeah, you can configuration manage and all those sorts of things, right? So, uh, anyways, so, but just getting all that mature, getting that a mature user-generated IT process for, you know, a significant amount of IT. Let's say another 30 or 40% of IT will, is going to come from this new user-generated model over time. And managing it and securing it, and putting the guardrails on it. Well, we have to put all that infrastructure in place. There is finally now IT service management tools that understand. Oh, I got to manage low, low code, and oh, I got to manage shadow IT, even though I didn't buy it. You know, I still have to manage it. So, uh, so getting all of that in, into place, automating that ninety percent of IT. That those are the challenges. And talent uh, is having the right talent. So we need new talent sourcing models. Those are now here though, and it, but it's just getting everyone up that that understanding curve. Um, there's just so much learning that we have to do to make that happen. Dion, you've developed some excellent uh, playbooks and, and practical strategies uh, for companies to uh, adopt and uh, embrace these changes. Where can the listeners uh, find out more about you and find these resources? Well, um, uh, you can you know, search for my name on, uh, on Google, all, my, uh, all the right places, my ZDNet column, um, uh, my personal website, dianhinchcliffe.com. Uh, my Twitter handle is probably the very best place to get a constant feed of everything I'm working on in real time. That's uh, D Hinchcliffe. Um, and uh, you, that pretty much will let you catch up with everything I'm working on. Brilliant. Thanks so much for your time. So knowledgeable, such interesting insight into what's going on within organizations. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much, Diane Hinchcliffe, for being with us. To our listeners, what did you think of this episode? Do you have any predictions for the future of work? How are you implementing your digital transformation strategies? Let us know in the comments from the podcast platform you're listening to. Also, please visit our website at www.torcloud.com for our blogs and our products. We're also on social media, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram. Talk to us there because we listen. Just look for Toro Cloud. Again, thank you very much for joining us for a round of cocktails today. This has been Diane Hinchcliffe, David Brown, 
and Kevin Montalvo at your service for coding over cocktails. <laughs>